This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Backstories. August Derleth. Chef Cheats. And the Roots of Nazi Occultism. The uh, clatter of dice and the heartwarming smell of uh, delivery pizza tell us that we are once again near the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And Robin, I don't know about you, but I'm not used to seeing all these blue books on the shelves of the uh, gaming hut. Do you have... uh, information to who's been scribbling in them and perhaps what they've been scribbling? Indeed, yes. Before we ordered this pizza, we elaborately worked out the psychologies of our imaginary characters and decided exactly which life choices and events affected their desire for each individual topping. So it took us four hours to do that, and the pizza has arrived. But now uh, that we have all of our backstories in place uh, and our pizza, it's time to go home because we used up all of our time on backstory. So I thought what we would do is talk about backstory in role-playing gaming and how to create backstories that are not only engaging to oneself, if one is someone who is engaged by backstory, which not everybody is, but how to make them pop during play because the potential drawback of the classic situation in which you, as you create your character, come up with three or four pages of backstory that you find vividly entertaining, is that those things that are on your three or four pages don't wind up in play. So I thought that we would look at techniques in order to get those in play in the first place, recognizing that backstory is on that long list of things that some people in a role-playing game group really enjoy and really engage with and other people can take or leave. There are different ways, of course, to generate backstories. There are some systems that give you life paths in which your backstory is part and parcel of the character generation process. So I guess the granddaddy of those games is Traveler, which sort of gives you a tour through your character's pre-adventuring career, uh, often as a a military officer, and there's the interesting little, you know, classic trade-off of how far you want to get him in his career before he's too old and decrepit to go and and perform any adventures. So that sort of gives everybody a backstory. But in, in a lot of other games, the question of how much biography to create around your character is, is left up to you, and some people seize on that, and some people don't. So, Ken, how would you advise people, first of all, what would be the easiest way to make sure that your uh, backstory that you've created on your own winds up in play in the game? The easiest way is to um, either co-create it with the GM's involvement, such that you sort of are there, you know, and, and I, not obviously, not everybody has time to do this, but uh, that you and the GM are sitting there and you're like, I want to, you know, come from the, the hills and be a strange and enigmatic hill dwarf. And the GM says, that will be great. And it would be terrific if you could be of the clan of uh, Ragnar, the hill dwarf, because I plan to put him into the, the game anyway. And then once we get to that point, you can have a lovely little spotlight moment and talk about uh, Ragnar and your time under the uh, two moons that are visible from the hills and whatever else. And then... You and the GM are sort of co-building part of the world, 
and also co-building part of your character, which tends to obviously knit those two things together, and it gives the GM an incentive to go um, uh, using your character in uh, her story so that she can, you know, bring stuff into play and make it all exciting and uh, and and sort of build it into the stories that she's going to be sort of uh, crafting at the table and build it into the adventures that you're going to have uh, as a party. And ideally, she will have done that with all the players, so it's not just you and your stupid dwarf, but it's everybody gets a, a turn in the backstory mill and eventually sort of interconnections are built up that uh, Ragnar, a hundred years ago, betrayed uh, the Lord of the Wood Elves, and now the Elven Ranger has a decision to make, and both of them later on in a in a great war against the Necromancer, and so the person who's the Necromancer's creation has to, you know, oh, I remember a story like that that my master used to um, uh, uh, chant uh, when he was, you know, you know, doing whatever. And, and so they they managed to build everyone together, everyone into the world, and it becomes sort of, you know, bridge over San Louis Ray with battle axes, which I think is sort of the you know, the the uh, consummation devoutly to be wished. Right, because otherwise you've got the classic drawback where you come up with a thousand words or fifteen hundred words of backstory all about your desire to recover the pearl sword that the seafaring people stole from your ancestors a generation ago and how this impacts on your desire to uh, marry your betrothed and so forth. But then you wind up just in a dungeon and involved in a dungeon grind or off solving some other mystery and there's no relationship between all of that thinking that you did about your character and what your character is actually doing because in fiction of course the process of connecting your character's actions to their motivations is all done by one person here in a role-playing game you need to find some way to do that collaboratively and although often systems even will ask you to supply bits of material that suggest backstories and directions, you still both the player and the GM have to make an effort to make sure that comes into play because the thing that happens all too often is that that just gives you a reason to say no, to reject the premise of whatever the GM wants to do because you want to go find the pearl sword, but instead the adventure of the week is going to find out who killed the squire. And so the trick there uh, is for the player and GM to get together to make sure that those two things connect up, which seems obvious but isn't necessarily always implemented. Another idea is to collaborate and leave openings for other players to contribute to your backstory and make your backstory a collective exercise so that it's not an adventuring party where everybody just sort of showed up with their own uh, narratives and concerns, but you don't see any reason for these people to be hanging out together as except for, you know, they've just all met in a bar and, you know, some reason a week ago, they all got together and that's not examined and you don't have the tight cords between them that would motivate them to all participate in the same procedural goal, never mind a dramatic goal. So let's say that you've done that. You've managed to create a harmonious whole where your backstory is connected to the broader narrative. Either the, the group altogether has arrived at what your collective goal is, and then you've worked backwards from there to what it is in your life history that would lead you toward that goal. And then from session to session, it's then easy enough to forget to 
bring the backstory that you created in the first place into play. Now, that may be perfectly acceptable. It may just be that that backstory gave you the inspiration to get started and got you excited about telling the story, and maybe you ignore all of that, and it's fine because you're creating an ongoing story that you find engaging and everybody else finds engaging. But let's say that you want to bring that backstory into play more. One thing to do is to, rather than have the structure where it's written as a narrative uh, in typical prose style, you might then, after writing that narrative, break it down into bullet points, bits of information that you can share about your character as you go along and play. And these needn't be things that even necessarily affect what it is that you're doing or want to do, but they can just add flavor to the little procedural contests that come up in play. So uh, one way to do that is to go through your list of skills or abilities and connect them to facts in your biography so that when you encounter a situation where you're, for example, using your uh, lockpick skills, you can then say, well, I learned how to do this when I was imprisoned on the Isle of Doom with a master thief named uh, Smotar, and Smotar showed me how to do this, and oh boy, I, I don't want to even tell you what happened to Smotar afterwards. Oh, the lock's unpicked. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and that's something that you very often see in procedural TV shows and stuff where it's not they're overcoming these little obstacles are not just the obstacle, but it's something that then reflects back on the character and enriches the character. So if you were to make uh, either a bullet point list or even an annotated character sheet that leads to little bits and pieces of your biography, you can then take that impulse to have a really detailed character and use it to entertain the rest of the players and the GM and, of course, yourself. Yeah, I think that connecting your backstory in modular format, right, in, as opposed to everyone sit still and let me tell you my backstory is unlikely to be entertaining, even, I will venture to say, if you're J.R.R. Tolkien and you are not J.R.R. Tolkien, whereas alluding to your backstory and dropping bits of your backstory into the into the play can be entertaining if you uh you know aren't just sort of shoehorning it in you know that uh that dead orc reminds me of my uncle um uh, bulger back in the hills with the other dwarves is is going to be less uh, apropos than a quick allusion you know my uncle bulger taught me the best way to kill an orc is stab up through its soft palate and then you do that and then you move on and now they know that you've got an Uncle Bulger who liked to uh, give ridiculous corny advice, but still killed a lot of orcs. And that maybe evokes more, and I think that that's just good in any sort of narrative art, right, is to uh, undertell rather than overtell, because you're making the listener's creativity an ally as opposed to an enemy whenever you uh, undertell something. And I think that that's... That, that's true, certainly, in the kinds of fiction that I like to read, as well as the kinds of fiction that I like to play. I would rather hint at five things than go into laborious detail about one. Right, and the secret of undertelling is information revealed in capsules that then sort of provide more information each time, that give you a, a that introduce in the classic way that information is presented in a compelling narrative, is as a series of uh, questions and reveals. And uh, those of you who've read Hamlet's hit points will know this well, but the idea is that an initial bit of information that introduces a question in the mind of the audience, in this case the GM and the other players, is much more satisfying than just a fact given you for no reason. So if you have that 
you know, previous thing, well, I really don't want to tell you what happened to Smotar, that creates the question in everybody's mind, well, gee, what did happen to Smotar? So you might do that one session, and you might ask yourself, what sort of question can I introduce about my character this session, and what more can I real, reveal toward that in the next session, so that you're creating a sort of a mini-narrative of your backstory that is revealed over successive episodes, and it's therefore more engaging because because you told me about Smotar last week, and if you bring it back, it's a callback. It refers to something that was introduced earlier and gives it that satisfying sense of unity and creates an emotional payoff when you finally get to the end of it. And of course, a, a GM who is uh, worth her salt uh, may have Smotar show up again, and it may not necessarily be in the way that you expected, you may have to improvise and yes and the way that she's yes anding you, but that then makes you integral to the narrative and incidentally makes the uh, GM want to bend over backwards to uh, fudge die rolls on your behalf in order to keep the whole Smotar storyline or whatever it is rolling. And again, it comes back then to cooperation and collaboration with the GM, which is, I think, the way to do anything in role-playing, whether it reveals something about yourself or on the GM side, reveal something about the world, because just as no one wants to hear one of the players talk endlessly about their their time in the hills with the rest of the dwarves, no one wants to hear the GM talk endlessly about the war between the elves and the dwarves. What they want is to see how that war is affecting their chances of getting, you know, the um, uh, plus four dagger or whatever it is that they are going after. And, and they would rather, you know, have, again, uh, you know, five pieces of information about that, that war sprinkled through the world than one lengthy info dump by the GM. I mean, if the GM wants to, just can't stand it, that's why God put web pages in the world. And so you just put all that in the web page, and then you don't have to um, uh, stop the play dead while you refer to it endlessly. Right. And a collaborative GM, as we just mentioned in a previous segment, really wants you to bring it. They want you to show up at the table with something to uh, spur what's going on or put a new twist on it. So one way to bring it that involves your backstory is to just look at your backstory, say, three or four episodes in and see what the really interesting bit is that hasn't come up in play and then just write on a little index card or note or just email the GM and say, uh, wouldn't it be really cool if something happened that brought this element of my character's biography into play? Now, it may not be the way that you expect it. It probably shouldn't be the way that you expect it. But again, a, a GM... Uh, getting direction of where you would like the story to go is, in my mind, always a gift. And only a really uncollaborative GM who just wants to narrate at you and have you go through a pre-programmed script is going to shoot that down. Instead, a GM who's really on the ball will give you what you want in an unexpected way. Yeah, and sort of along that line, be on the lookout for things that the GM is going to be introducing, either because they've said tomorrow or you know next Monday we're going to go back down into the bottomlands. We're going to look at that bottomlands temple, so no screwing around. Uh, or, you know, maybe you've gotten just about to the temple, and then it's time for everyone to go home. So you can go back, and you can look through your backstory and say, is there any, any, any as again, not a shoehorned anecdote, but is there something that my backstory can contribute to this story of this bottomlands temple? Is there any you know, way, and maybe you email the GM between times and you say, hey, did the Bottomlands uh, marsh people and the dwarves have anything to do with each other? Or is this, like, am I completely at sea here? And the GM will at the very least say, you know, see my website, I explained it all. 
or they will maybe say um uh they they will say something along the lines of well, I don't know. Um I guess I could I'm thinking of a possibility of X and uh you know, didn't your um your 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 dwarf's great aunt Melinda wasn't she, you know, thought of as awfully um uh, uh squishy and salt smelling by the other dwarves and it's like, "Oh yeah, that's right." And so you can <laughs> again collaboratively put a hook into your character there. If there is, if there doesn't have, happen to be a thing in your in your character backstory that is already going to maybe uh, valuably come out, and again, much like um, if you're you know saving your Smotar anecdote for the next lock picking thing, maybe you've got an anecdote you know loaded up and ready to go for the next time you're down in the in the bottomlands. You know what the bottomlands has to do with your character because you've again ideally worked your character into the GM's world as opposed to into some you know, amalgam of fantasy world that exists only in your head. Right. And there's also a principle of reciprocity at work, where if you have other players who are engaged with their characters' backstories, and again, not everybody is going to, but let's say you've got another couple of storyteller-ish, method actor-ish players who are interested in presenting elements of their characters' backstories, you can have a share-and-share-alike thing, where instead of thinking, well, how am I going to call back to my own fact about my biography that I introduced last week, you can pay attention to what other people are introducing into play and then try to find a way to ping off that so that you might be the one, uh, you know, player A may introduce the storyline about the uh, marshy ant, and then in the next session, you might come up with something and say, wait a minute, I I met a strangely marshy smelling uh dwarf on the uh, plains of Zar, and she gave me this uh, amulet. Does this mean anything to you? And then that uh, allows you to not only have the collaboration going on in parallel between each player and the GM, but to make sure that there's narrative collaboration between all of the players together as well. Yeah, the the, the part where, you know, you start cooperating with other players is obviously, again, a, a, a something that should be happening in every aspect of the game. And as with a lot of these gaming hut topics, they turn out to sort of come back to these fundamental principles, or at least fundamental as, as I uh, play them at, at my table and try and, uh, you know, uh, encourage them, is, you know, collaboration, helping out your fellow players, helping out the GM, being open to the GM, being open to fellow players. And so if you have either tied your character into other characters' backstory, you have a hook there, or this may be a time when you can say... Yeah, my um uh, my dwarf doesn't have a lot to do with the bottomlands, but what didn't your um uh, you know your necromancer didn't he go down to the bottomlands and get artifacts, Mister uh Mister Flesh Golem? And the Flesh Golem's like, oh, that's right, yeah. And one of the artifacts that he went down and got was was a the tooth of a of a dwarven hero that he wanted to do something with. I don't know what it was, and maybe you guys are you know doing that riffing back and forth either before the game where the GM can hear you or online where the GM can see you or at game and the GM is hastily making notes for herself and say, tooth of dwarven hero, toothless dwarven lich, you know, in, in her notes and, you know, getting ready to, to pop that in. And I think that that's, again, part of the, the, the fun of, of this medium as opposed to other media is that you can have this sort of real-time backstory and this real-time introduction of stuff and where we lose... With foreshadowing, which doesn't always be brought off, we gain in doesn't always be brought off. Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's our episode title right that's, there. That's our episode title. Okay. Uh, we gain in uh, spontaneity and the possibility of riffing off each other in that sort of, you know, jazz compositional way. And I think that 
again, your backstory should should get to reflect that, just like everything else that happens, down to giving someone a you know a plus one flanking bonus by distracting the the naiads or whatever. Right, and through that, you can inspire people who are not necessarily interested in doing a bunch of homework about their backstories into building little bits of their characters' uh, back histories during play. Now, some characters, they're less interesting the more you know about them. As You know, the broader characters can be fun if they just have sort of an air of mystery about them. But then when there's a, just even a little bit of biographical information, especially something that seems to tie together with something that's already established that creates that sense of a narrative that has a sense of collective authorship to it. And since we have returned to the fundament of the gaming hut, I guess that's as good a time as any to close it up for the week and <laughs> head on to our next segment. If you've never been around the fundament of a gamer, then you know that it is time to leave. <laughs> Now we come to the interactive portion of our podcast in which uh, we continue to talk to one another, but at the inspiration of one of our fearless and peerless listeners. And uh, they don't get any more fearless or peerless than Jeremy French, who's been helping us out by adding show notes and bibliographies to our episode posts. And uh, let's repay him by answering the following question. Are there merits to reading August Durless Lovecraftian fiction and why? Now, uh, I have obeyed the collective judgment of fandom and avoided reading August Durless Lovecraftian fiction, but perhaps, uh, Ken, before we get onto the merits of his work, you could just give people a brief biography on uh, who August Durleth was and why we're tossing this question around in the first place. Okay, August Durleth, or Durleth was a... Um... He was a writer. He was a, I think, let's see, he was born in 1909, so he would have been a teenager still when he knew Lovecraft. And as teenagers do when they encounter H.P. Lovecraft, he fell madly in love with this amazing epical figure in horror and science fiction and resolved to be exactly like him with the slight difference that he was in a position to do something about it. And he wrote a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, letters to H.P. Lovecraft. And in one of the fairly early ones, he sent uh, Lovecraft a story of his that uh, Lovecraft, um, as he did with all of his correspondence, sort of dissected and, and explained what was wrong with it and, and sent him back and said, good job, keep trying, you're a real talent. And as it transpired, August Derleth was a real talent in at least two areas. And the first is his sort of regional fiction, which is uh, straight novels, uh, literary novels about Wisconsin and about the Sac Prairie area where he pretty much lived his whole life, that, that stretch of Wisconsin that's sort of glacially formed and it's got lots of woods and, and, and rills and creeks and lakes and it's not urban, uh, but it's like no other place in America and he really captured that in his regional fiction and turned out to be a pretty good writer of it and became very, very uh, popular in, you know, sort of a, a mid-list way back when you could have a mid-list. Right, and that was a period when there was such a thing as regional fiction, because yeah. today you have people writing literary fiction that has a sense of place to it, but you don't just go, oh, well, that's only for people from Wisconsin and the immediate area. You just go, oh, well, you know, Richard Ford sets all of his novels in 
Wisconsin or wherever that happens to be. Right. And, um, yeah, this was sort of, you know, uh, this is at the same time, for example, that, that Faulkner is, is, you know, reinv reinventing the Southern Gothic. And you have that sort of voice is happening all over America in all kinds of other uh, literary, uh, you know, anthologies, literary magazines, literary publications. Right. And at the same time, you've got a regional movement in visual art as well. Yeah. They're, you know, once again, the, the 1930s. Interesting. This has been the 1930s. So uh, Derleth goes on to also, as it happens, sort of wrest control of Lovecraft's legacy after Lovecraft dies from Lovecraft's uh, uh, appointed executor, Robert H. Barlow, who was even younger than Derleth and also... Would, was not really cut out for the for the business of publishing, which, you know, one can say one thing or another about August Derleth, but he, beginning with the very unprepossessing material of the mass of unpublished Lovecraft stories, managed to create pretty much the model for small press American horror fiction, and to, a, and to an extent, all, all small press American specialty fiction, with Arkham House, which he set up in this enormous house that he sort of built himself on the shores in the sort of the Sauk Lake area, in Sauk City, Wisconsin, and he, through basically nothing but bullheaded hard work, kept H.P. Lovecraft in print and kept Lovecraft's sort of legacy alive until it could be discovered by people who immediately set about badmouthing August Derleth. And <laughs> part of the reason that they badmouth August Derleth is because among the ways that he chose to keep Lovecraft's legacy alive was to write a number of posthumous collaborations with H.P. Lovecraft in which he would take a phrase out of Lovecraft's um, uh, commonplace book and finish it as he imagined Lovecraft would have written it and then s submit it to Weird Tales, which uh, under uh, Dorothy McElwraith realized that the words H.P. Lovecraft meant big sales on the, on the newsstand would publish anything. And so they published an awful lot of very very bad uh, stories because Derleth was deliberately swallowing his own style and trying to write just like Lovecraft. And you have to sort of separate those stories, the posthumous collaborations, virtually all of which are terrible, uh, with the possible exception of the, the Lurker at the Threshold, which is a novel, from his Lovecraftian mythos stories, which are you know, a, a mixed bag as most people's mythos stories are. Now, are they terrible because they are earlier or just because the process of trying to create a story from somebody else's story kernel is uh, a, a dead fish on arrival? I, I think that there is a there is a degree to which the story doesn't organically come out of Derleth's, uh, you know, imagination doesn't come out of his heart. He's probably, you know, overthinking it, working too hard. Lovecraft would, would say, look, Augie, uh, as you would call them, um, write what you know. You've got this great, uh, you know, gift for your own hills and valleys. Don't come over and bogart my hills and valleys. Write about your hills and valleys. <laughs> and so when Derleth is trying to write about crumbling New England, which he has never been to, it comes out stilted. It comes out forced. It's bad. And I think that he, when he's doing these, um, uh, these, these uh, posthumous collaborations with Lovecraft, he really is, he's swallowing his own style and he's trying very, very hard to write you know, sort of channel the spirit of his, of his dead mentor. And that, you know, as Lovecraft could tell you, never turns out well. I, I don't know that the, um, that the act of, say, taking a, a line from Lovecraft's commonplace book and trying to write a story about it is necessarily the, the you know, the, the death blow here. I think it's the decision to swallow his own style. Because even the stuff where he is, to an extent, pastiching Lovecraft and trying to write in a Lovecraftian voice or tone, it's better than the posthumous collaborations. And I think that there is a degree to which 
he, at some level, is maybe teaching himself to, to write pastiche at the same time that he's putting these stories out. Now, the other knock on Durlith was not just that he pastiched Lovecraft poorly, but that he imposed his own more hopeful Christian worldview on Lovecraft's original uh, sort of malign existential materialism. Yeah, and I think that this knock, um, I, I have to hope that this knock is going to start dying out as it becomes apparent that, yes, uh, Lovecraft is safe, and we will be able to read Lovecraft forever without having to read August Derlet's introduction to the short stories or August Derlet's analysis of Lovecraft as Manichaean mythmaker. And that it came out of sort of a panic fear that the only way anyone was ever going to understand Lovecraft was through this prism of August Derlet's understanding of Lovecraft. Because again, obviously, if, if Lovecraft is the great literary figure that, uh, that Joshi and other Lovecraftian scholars believe, as do I, um, you have to be able to read him a lot of different ways. Uh, that's the whole point of being a literary figure. If there's only one way to read something, that's not literature, that's how to put together a stereo. That, that It's a whole different thing. You have to be able to look at um, uh, even a work of you know fairly clear uh, philosophical meaning, like, say, Animal Farm, and you have to be able to at the very least, come to it from a different, a bunch of different perspectives, and respond to what is a fairly clear allegory in a nuanced fashion, or else Animal Farm again is not is not literature. The same is true of Lovecraft. The only way to read Lovecraft is in Lovecraft's dead voice, and you rule out every other possible interpretation of the Lovecraft mythology. And Lovecraft, of course, contradicted his own mythology myriads of times in his own writing then you're impoverishing Lovecraft studies. But at the time that this uh, Durleth panic is coming out, it's coming out in the 1970s when it really does look like the only way you're ever going to see Lovecraft in print is if August Durleth is, is running the show and making it happen. And uh, Durleth dies in 1971. The, the quote-unquote uh, Durleth mythos backlash doesn't begin until he's safely dead. And that's when I think that there is sort of a, you know, on the one hand, an understandable, but on the other hand, kind of mean-spirited desire to dig your way up out of Durlet's interpretation. Right, because if a, a writer is coming along now who wants to play in the mythos, that as as an editor or even as, as someone consulting on like the Trail of Cthulhu line, mm -hmm. bringing your own perspective to it, not just your own sense of your own time and place, but your own worldview is considered a plus. And for Durlet, and it appears Durlet alone, uh, it was considered a giant mi minus for the historical reasons that you've just outlined. And also because there is an argument to be made, and I don't necessarily buy it, that Durlet's vision is necessarily less cosmic than Lovecraft's vision because it reduces the illogicality and unreason of the Lovecraft universe down to a more uh, straightforward tale of good versus evil. And there are good elder gods and bad great old ones, and the good elder gods smack the bad great old ones around, but the bad great old ones are going to rise back up again. And Durleth it certainly engaged in a lot of, well, I wrote to Lovecraft and you didn't, so shut up, punk, when people would criticize his vision of Lovecraft. And people like Clark Ashton Smith would just ignore August Derleth when he would say it. But if people who hadn't written to Lovecraft, who were not, you know, one hotith away from, from the from the prophet, as, as Derleth was, would, would, you know, sort of, okay, and they would start writing the Derleth mythos into their Cthulhu mythos stories, and that tendency, because Durleth edited a lot of Lovecraftian anthologies and picked stories, obviously, that he liked and rejected ones he didn't like, 
is a tendency that worried a lot of this first generation of post-Durlet scholars. And that if that became a self-perpetuating trend, then you would be stuck with that one reading of Lovecraft forever. But even when Durleth was publishing, he was not publishing quite so monolithically as the post-Durleth legend has it. He printed plenty of things that disagreed with Durleth's read on Lovecraft, either because they were um, uh, by people who could slap him down when he started talking about Manichaeism, because they were Clark Ashton Smith or they were Fritz Leiber, or he published other stuff that he just thought was really good. He gave, for example, to David Drake the same advice that uh, David that he got from Lovecraft. Don't write what I write, write what you write. He gave that advice to Ramsey Campbell when Ramsey Campbell turned in a whole mass of barely readable Lovecraftian pastiche. And Durleth came back and said, don't set stuff in America. You've never been to America. Set stuff in whatever part of, of England you live in. And that's what created probably the second or third greatest uh, post-Lovecraftian body of, of mythos work is Campbell's uh, Goatswood mythos, the, the Severn Valley mythos. And had Durleth not done that, had he been as uh, blinkered and close-minded as people say, you would not have had you know, Ramsey Campbell, and you wouldn't have had David Drake. And I think that anyone who looks at those two artists, both of whom are formed by Durleth early on in their career, the knock on Durleth as being closed-minded and, and bad for Lovecraftian fiction just has to fall to the ground of its own of its own weight. So it sounds like you're working toward a reclamation of Durleth's reputation. Does it, so does that extend to there being particular works that you could uh, recommend to people as being enjoyable in and of themselves as contributions to the uh, Lovecraftian mythos? Well, I am, I'm on the record as saying that I, I like uh, Ithaqua a great deal. Uh, Durleth invented Ithaqua. I like the Chocho people who he co-invented with uh, Mark Shore, and the stories in which those uh, creatures bow. Um, the uh, the Thing That Walked on the Wind, which is his first Ithaqua story, is, again, it's regional because he sets it in northern Wisconsin in an area that he knows. He's uh, riffing on Blackwood, so it's not entirely a Lovecraft uh, mank, and therefore I think has a, a degree of dimensionality to it that some of his stuff doesn't. And he wrote uh, those stories very early. He wrote those in the in the uh, 40s, um, when he was sort of missing Lovecraft so badly. I think he wrote, uh, he wrote Thing That Walked on the Wind in, uh, during Lovecraft's lifetime, even, and uh, sent him, you know, probably a copy of it. And Lovecraft, again, comes back and says, you know, more you, less me, because Lovecraft is that kind of guy. And then he wrote um, Lair of the Starspawn, uh, which I think is, again, it's not going to uh, knock Oliver Onions off the um, uh, shelf of anthologizable science fiction, but it's certainly it's it's an able way to take Lovecraft's concerns and put them more towards the adventure fiction side of, of the universe and less towards uh, the hardcore SF. I, th I think that one of the things that Durleth brought to the mythos was a wide reading in adventure fiction and, and in sort of more popular fiction, and that's where you get things like The Trail of Cthulhu, his linked set of short stories that he turned into a novel, which basically reads like a Fu Manchu novel, like, you know, Sax Romer, only instead of being, you know, uh, worried about the yellow peril, you're worried about deep ones. And frankly, that's that's an improvement in a lot of different ways. Yes, it's it's much easier to be racist about deep ones. Yeah, because the, the um, uh, first of all, their, their, their lobby got broken up by the government in 28. Yes. So. Their, their general non-existence helps there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the answer is there are some selected... Durleth stories that are worth reading and that a lot of the knocks on him are uh, 
sort of historical artifacts that we now have enough distance to uh, set aside. I hope so. I, I think if you find there was an anthology that I think Barnes and Noble or somebody put together called the Cthulhu Mythos, which is written, you know, is credited to August Durleth. It just contains the Durleth stuff. It doesn't contain any of his collaborations. And I think that you'll, you know, nothing's going to set you on your heels. It's not Ramsey Campbell. It's not David Drake. It's not Fritz Leiber. But what it is, is it's competent mythos fiction. And two or three of the stories are actually really quite good. There's um, uh, something in wood is actually kind of good. Um, I think that there's a number of them that, that repay reading even over and above Oh, good, more Cthulhu Mythos, which is, of course, what, you know, I, how I read them all. Right, and his creation of the, the cultural infrastructure of Arkham House is still also a huge achievement because uh, it is not just creating culture, but uh, doing things that perpetuate it and get it out to an audience that uh, really allow it to get out there and live and breathe, and just as, it, as we would perhaps not be as interested in Lovecraft today without the Chaosium game, uh, we would certainly uh, probably not know about it at all if it weren't for Durlith or somebody else who'd come along and taken that role if he hadn't. Yeah, people, people, um, especially anti-Durlethians, like to say that uh, Durlith was not necessary, that the work that he did to preserve Lovecraft, it, it, it doesn't matter because quality will out and people will, would have discovered Lovecraft eventually, to which I would say even compare Lovecraft's reception in the world now with that of M.R. James, who didn't need, who certainly didn't need um, uh, August Durleth to, to champion him. And there is more structure of scholarship, there's more deep study of him in the Academy now than there is of James, who is by any measure a better writer. And then if you compare him to someone like William Hope Hodgson, who is literally only remembered today because Lovecraft wrote about him, <laughs> then you you have to you know look at another terrific writer a, a seminal figure in in uh, horror and in uh, to a lesser extent in sort of uh, uh, to a degree science fiction and you and you look at uh, at Hodgson and there's practically no infrastructure there and at best I think Lovecraft without Durleth is like William Hope Hodgson he's someone who one out of ten uh, scholars of the field know end quote to each other not who everyone knows and who shows up in everything from video games to Metallica lyrics. Well, uh, we may have to send you back in time to uh, create an infrastructure around Hodgson, but that, uh, once again, is a allusion to a future segment and therefore the end of this segment. Hands and the shouting of probably British people means that we are uh, at least on the televised version of the Food Hut, but we are going to move behind the stage to the secrets they won't show you. And Robin, you have a, a real bombshell for us today, don't you? Yeah, so what I'd like to uh, kick around is the idea that uh, those of us who are uh, uh, learning to uh, cook to enhance their uh, freelancer or just general lives... Uh, Often, once you get down the road of cooking from fresh ingredients, you may convince yourself that 
only fresh ingredients are, are the way to go, and you may turn up your nose at all processed foods in all of their forms. If you look at uh, a recipe in a uh, highfalutin magazine, you'll find that you're usually asked to make everything from scratch. But even chefs in restaurants uh, cheat by using certain uh, condiments and sauces. And so I thought that we would uh, look at the things that you can buy from a store to perk up your uh, cooking uh, without shame. And I thought I would throw in my first suggestion. Now, this is going to be one of those things, depending on where you are in the world, you're uh, not necessarily uh, going to be able to find these specific things, but hopefully you can find a local analog of some or all of these things. Living in Toronto, as I imagine is true in Chicago, you are blessed with an incredible range of foods from around the world. And within walking distance of my house, I can go to a Korean supermarket or a Chinese supermarket or a uh, various sort of pan-national locations, uh, supermarkets from Latin America. So I have a, a, a huge opportunity to pick up uh, cool little cans and bottles of this or that. But even now, larger supermarkets in North America increasingly have international sections where you can find this stuff. So the first thing I would urge people to look into are the Pataks line of uh, Indian uh, curry pastes and sauces, and that I almost never cook anything that anybody's South Asian grandma would recognize as Indian cooking, but I <laughs> do use a lot of these sauces a lot in a, a lot of other dishes that I make. So, for example, uh, their uh, Patak's mild uh, curry paste is a staple of my uh, most awesome grilled Brussels sprouts. And so all you have to do to uh, make incredible tasting Brussels sprouts, and you may think this is a contradiction in terms, and I'm here to tell you that uh, paired with the uh, right sauce or flavoring to counteract and bring out uh, the uh, the bitterness, uh, Brussels sprouts are an amazing thing, especially if you uh, roast them or in this case grill them. And so uh, what I will do is uh, blanch uh, the Brussels sprouts until they are soft to the fork and then uh, coat them in uh, Patak's uh, curry paste. You could also use a biryani paste or for variation, even their tandoori paste. And then in the summertime, you just, uh, once you've got them coated in a, a good supply of uh, curry paste, you then uh, put them on the grill along with uh, whatever other uh, meat or vegetables that you're uh, grilling. And once they start to get a nice uh, crispy burnt outer coating, uh, they are delish. You can also uh, in non-grilling weather, if you are in a place that admits uh, such a thing as we are here in Toronto, uh, you can equally well roast them in a roast pan uh, in the oven uh, with a, a coating of uh, curry paste. And uh, there's all sorts of other things that I uh, use uh, these paste for. I might uh, switch up pork chops by coating them in the tandoori paste and doing them in the pan or on the grill. So uh, if you're there are so many uh, different ones to try, and with different flavors, there's a butter chicken one that I would recommend as well, and you can use them to flavor both uh, meats and vegetables, and just, uh, you know, picking up a few of them gives you an enormous range to vary your default uh, meat and veg side dish uh, meals. Before we get into the, uh, the the deeps on it, I want to appeal to authority, as I often do. Um there's a great uh, cookbook by David Rosengarten called It's All American Food, and there's an anecdote at the beginning of it where he talks about being at a uh, chef's competition in Reykjavik, Iceland, which seems 
like <laughs> a ridiculous place to hold a chef's competition, but then, you know, people in Iceland need entertainment. And chefs want to go to Iceland, I'm sure. And chefs want to go to Iceland, so it sounds like a perfect plan. As do game designers. Indeed. Um, it was the big American airbase at, I think it was Keflavik or wherever it is that they have it, the American grocery store that's attached to that airbase was the sort of place that they sourced a lot of their groceries from. And... Uh, uh, Rosengarten is a judge, and he's following behind one of the chefs, who is Pierre Hermé, who is apparently a big noise in the world of pastry cooking. And he notices that Hermé has got two carts going. He's got the cart of stuff for the competition, and he's got another cart. And he's asking what that second cart is. He says, oh, I'm just buying that to take back with me to Paris after the competition is over. He says, well, if that's the case, why is there Hellman's mayonnaise in your shopping cart? And he says... <laughs> Because you can't get it in yes. Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, he's, and he says, but can't you, you know, make mayonnaise? He says, but Elman's is better. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not the sort of thing you expect a French chef to say, even under the uh, 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 bright lights of an American-style supermarket in Iceland. But I, I, I look at an anecdote like that, and when I'm, you know, making something that calls for a ketchup recipe, as I think does everyone from Mark Bittman on down, I do not make my own ketchup. I, you know, reach for the, the, the Hunts or the Heinz, and I squeeze it on out there, because part of the reason that uh, that I cook, anyway, using sort of processed uh, food ingredients, is because I already know how they're going to taste, and the, I spent about a year um, making stuff with mustard in it, and for some of the things... Uh, I would just use one of four or five standard mustards. You know, your 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 horseradish mustard, your brown mustard, your yellow mustard, whatever it, it happened to be. Again, because I knew how it was going to come out. Because when I would make mustard from, you know, scratch, I'm not a very good maker of mustard. And so my results would be all over the map. And, you know, although you might want to start with mustard seeds or mustard powder or mustard oil every time you're doing it, you're going to wind up with the end result being unpredictable, which, again, if you're cooking in order to eat the results as opposed to, to eventually, you know, derive a perfect recipe, you know, a month later, you know, you sort of want your, your food to taste like what you thought it was going to taste like when you put it in the, uh, in the oven or on the, or on the stovetop. Right. And let's be honest, even if you are the world's best maker of homemade horseradish, that's many hours of work that uh, most people uh, have busy lives these days. And, uh, you know, we are not addressing this podcast to people who are professional cooks who cook for themselves all day. We're trying to give shortcuts to make the ordinary food that uh, you make in the course of your uh, regular week seem impressive. So, you know, you m might want to have one or two specialty things that you uh, make and give away to other people and impress the hell out of, but practicality uh, means that you also want to raid the uh, supermarket shelves. So is there a, a particular uh, ingredient that you use in a, a favorite Ken Height dish? Um, in my favorite Ken Height dishes, uh, besides the prepared foods of bourbon, which go in a surprisingly uh, lot of uh, different things, uh, I, I use an awful lot of, uh, like I was saying, I, I use an awful lot of, of prepared mustard. I, I can use yellow mustard, and I can use any number of, of standard Dijon mustards. I find uh, work out really, really well when I'm when I'm mustarding things up one way or the other. There's sort of a, uh, it's it's like a breakfast hash. You make it with uh, sausage and potatoes, and you fry the hell out of it. But rather than it being bland and horrible, you have to gussy it up with some uh, mustard and some other stuff. And I find that uh, the mustard, uh, you know, 
I can I can get just as good a result out of you know a jar of Dijon mustard from wherever than I can from trying to figure out how to blend the mustard oil and the and the white wine and the cream, which is basically all Dijon mustard is. Right. I would also argue that there is no shame whatsoever in using store-bought barbecue sauce. Many of them are well-formulated to be delish as they are. You can also use them as the base that you add other stuff to, whether that's fresh garlic or additional spices that you like. One barbecue sauce that I'm relying on very heavily these days is Korean barbecue sauce. Um, mm, yeah. And uh, I can find this at my local Korean supermarket just a few blocks away, but I actually prefer the uh, local sort of supermarket store brand. Canadians will know uh, Loblaws and their President's Choice line because it is a little uh, thicker than the official uh, Korean barbecue sauce from Korea and is therefore more amenable to slapping on at the last minute and it will adhere to your uh, steak or pork chop or chicken, whatever, a bit more, whereas the... Uh, classic Korean barbecue sauce is intended to be a marinade so that, uh, and if you do have time or rather the forethought to marinate your uh, steak or whatever it is in the Korean barbecue sauce, you do get noticeably better results. But uh, even just a, a coating of that, again, either on the grill or in a roast pan of the oven is uh, uh, fabulous. So I would highly recommend anyone who has not investigated Korean barbecue sauce beyond uh, perhaps going to a Korean restaurant to uh, keep an eye out for it either in the international section or in Koreatown if their city has one. Yeah, I use um, the the pre-mixed bulgogi sauce that I can buy in Korean grocery stores in Chicago. And I use it not just for making bulgogi, but I, uh, if I, again, as you say, if I have had the forethought, I marinate uh, just ground beef and onion in it, and I can make um, bulgogi hamburgers. And you put those on the grill, you put the... Uh, a little kimchi on it, maybe some uh, uh, elmans or your other favorite uh, brand of mayonnaise, and you are good to go in terms of making a really terrific uh, hamburger. And I think that bulgogi sauce is, again, one of those things that, yeah, you could make it if you wanted to mix, you know, pear juice, although it wouldn't be Korean pear juice, so it wouldn't quite be right. But I, I find the, the, the existence of these giant jars of bulgogi that, that you can find in Korean grocery stores to be like a, a blessing and a benison. You also want to stock your pantry with different flavored vinegars. Um, oh, God, yes. Not just for uh, salad dressings, although, of course, they are perfect for that. And one thing that I would recommend is uh, I, I, I do not have any pre-prepared salad dressings in my uh fridge. I uh, make everything from scratch with uh, just a little bit of olive oil and then uh, vinegar because first, and uh, uh, you want to go with, uh, I go with a ratio of uh, two uh, quantities of olive oil and good quality olive oil to one of vinegar. And if you uh, have not only a good quality balsamic, but a range of other uh, flavored vinegars, if you, uh, you there's an interesting uh, brand of uh, uh, Japanese uh, uh, rice vinegars that are all flavored, so you can look for that. Or uh, if you go to a gourmet store, you'll see all sorts of things from pomegranate vinegar on down. And you can use those not only uh, for dressings, but also you can uh, create an interesting uh, mushroom marinade if you have a little bit of olive oil and a flavored vinegar and uh, some fresh herbs uh, in with that. And then you can uh, cut up your... Uh, portobello mushrooms or other kind of mushrooms and then let them soak in there for a couple of hours in like a freezer bag. And then again, you can put them on your grill or in your uh, roast pan in your oven. 
Yeah, your your notion of using pre-bottled uh, barbecue sauce, since I grew up with Texas barbecue, for me it's always been a dry rub. And again, what I do is I just mix my own dry rub usually. But there's a chain in Chicago called the Spice House that I know used to have a store, or rather it has a competitor, uh, Penzi's, that had a store in Milwaukee that uh, we used to load up on their spices and bring them back from Gen Con back in the day. And both of those have... First of all, they have curry powders. The Penzi's curry powder is the best curry powder I've ever found anywhere. And I, I would never dream of making my own curry powder, not least because it involves saffron, which I would rather save for something where I can taste the saffron in it. But uh, uh, the Penzi's curry powder is phenomenal. And then the Spice House has a lot of, of, of rubs that are actually really good that they've sort of formulated over many, many uh, you know iterations. And they've come up with a number of different kinds of, of spice rubs for different kinds of meat or different uh, different flavor effects. And sometimes I just want to build it from scratch, but sometimes it's good to know that I can reach for, you know, central street rub and just put it on my my meat and, and grill it that way. In terms of barbecue sauce, I, I if, if I'm not making a, a Texas dry rub, I almost always make my sauce myself. But on the other hand, my wing sauce, which other people will you know, fall backwards in a faint if you don't make yourself. I just use um, uh, Frank's, and that's terrific. It's As far as I'm concerned, it's what buffalo wing sauce ought to be. Uh, well, on that note, I can hear uh, podcast listeners uh, shutting us off to go to their grocery stores, so perhaps we better quickly segue to a uh, another segment before we lose everyone. We are once again within the precincts of the Consulting Occultist, and as you recall from last week, we're embarking on a multi-part series inspired by Ken's new Osprey Adventures book, uh, The Nazi Occult, and this week uh, we're going to start the history portion of our Consulting Occultist series by laying the groundwork that leads to Nazi occultism, because the book kicks off uh, not with the beginning of the Nazi movement, but with the generation before that. And uh, I've, first of all, have never talked or thought of, as much about Nazis uh, in my entire <laughs> life as I have over the uh, little less than a year that we've been doing this podcast. Uh, I don't necessarily <laughs> like to uh, think about them, so I'm glad to handle them in this uh, epic uh, manner. And of course, one of the things that's uh, baffling in retrospect about that entire movement is uh, unlike uh, communism, which also racks up an epic body count in the 20th century, it, uh, communism does not seem evil on its face. They are uh, promoting a vision of the world that is uh, idealistic, and underneath that, there's uh, a lot of murdering to get there, whereas not, the... Not that far underneath it. <laughs> uh, right, but there there is a public face, whereas the public face of uh, Nazism is uh, the text, as well as the subtext, is <laughs> brutal and uh, insane and, and, you know, and completely uh, nuts. And one of the, the things that you touch on as you're laying the groundwork for how this ideology took root and uh, made sense to enough people for it to happen and become this giant movement and, and reshape the middle part of the century uh, was a sense within uh, Germany in the early part of the century that the 
Enlightenment, uh, Leibniz aside, was not a German thing, but was a thing that had been imposed on Germany from the outside. And then once you uh, reject the notion of the Enlightenment, which is that uh, you should understand uh, the world and understand your place in it and pursue that through reason and information, you create a cauldron for all sorts of uh, nuttiness to brew. So I wonder if you could just um, start off by expanding on that in terms of what the, the intellectual atmosphere uh, was in uh, pre-war Germany that allowed uh, not only Nazism to take root, but a lot of very strange occult or metaphysical beliefs that took on a, a probably more of a mainstream uh, weight than they would have in other places. Well, when you say pre-war, we're talking not about pre-World War II, we're talking about pre-World War I, because the, 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 the sort of the movement that grew into a lot of different things, as you point out, among them Nazism, is uh, called the Volkish movement because it uh, was a movement of the Volk, in the sense that people looked around at uh, the, the, the condition of Germany and they said, we need to get back to the simple, plain, good, honest wisdom of the Volk. And Volkish can be translated as ethnic, it can be translated as populist, it can be translated as folkloric. It's one of those German words that there's not a really great uh, straight translation for into English. But if you imagine some movement that believes in all of those things simultaneously, you'll sort of get at where Volkish movements are going. And the thing is that obviously every country in the 19th century is going through one or another version of this. Uh, in Britain, it became the Boy Scouts, for example. The same exact notion of we have to go back and uh, get back with the land and, and get right with the simple manly virtues. Uh, we can't be having all these cities corrupting people. But, you know, So in Britain, it becomes the Boy Scouts, and in Germany, it becomes World War II. And that's right there, the difference between winning and losing World War I, as far as I'm concerned. Because this movement is part and parcel of all of 19th century uh, Western thought, and to an, to an extent, in the sense that the Japanese are doing pretty much the exact same thing as they're frantically modernizing, it tends, it, I would argue that it's just part of modernity, that you start looking at, you know, yourself, you've, uh, you know, there's upheavals of uh, overthrown traditional culture and traditional economics in all kinds of ways, you're desperately grasping for something in the past that you can believe in. And this is the same movement that causes the British Folklore Society to go around and start writing down all the fairy myths. It's the same thing that gets uh, William Butler Yeats to start translating uh, Celtic uh, legends and, and trying to summon fairies and putting that stuff into his poetry. It's the same nationalist movement that uh, causes uh, French uh, historians to begin their uh, histories uh, with our forefathers, the Gauls, and causes uh, Jules Michelet to start uh, denouncing the anti-French uh, aspects of, of French culture, such as Catholicism, uh, that he'd seen as imposed on uh, France from the outside. And so even your very enlightenment -y countries, your most enlightenment -y countries of all, like France, have their own versions of this sort of mania to go back and find the roots of uh, of of your of your ethnos, right? Your nationality, right? Because it, every movement spawns its own counter movement, and the en Enlightenment, which ultimately leads to the Industrial Revolution, spawns the counter movement of Romanticism, and that all of these uh, different movements are in different ways expressions of that uh, Romantic ideal, and this and this, of course, is one that turned. Uh, dark and uh, murdery. So am I misreading you in saying that in uh, Germany specifically that there was a more intense 
uh, sense that the Enlightenment was not for them? No, the, 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 the two things that Germany has, first, is it has, unlike England, unlike France, unlike even Russia, it has a sense that its nationhood has been postponed, right? That it, be, it spends most of the 19th century when everyone else is running around and writing poetry and, and uh, being swoony, uh, still split into a zillion different uh, petty states and trying to take its place on the great stage of Europe. And the people who's, the man who's keeping them down is France, because it was Napoleon who invaded Germany and, uh, and kicked over the apple cart and brought all these hateful modern ideas of, of coherent law codes and such. And uh, so they identify the imperialistic aspect of the Enlightenment with Napoleon, and then they also identify France as the, the great enemy whose machinations are keeping Germany down. And so there is a definite you know, anti-France and anti-France's self-conception as the leader of the world into modernity, the La Mission Civilatrice, uh, they, they, they identify themselves as anti-that. And so in German uh, nationalism and in the German Volkish movement, there is absolutely a rejection of specifically the French Enlightenment and of that sort of uh, appeal to secularism and appeal to rationality that the French were so fond of. Although, of course, German Volkish movement has far more in common with Rousseau than it ever does with John Locke. So in the, in the sense of they're embracing it to, to, to stab it better, I guess, with, with the French Enlightenment. But it is much stronger in Germany because of that delayed uh, explosion of their nationalism that doesn't come out as you know being able to be part of a nation as opposed to a Volk until 1871 and the unification of the German Empire. So uh, we've talked about various movements and just being interested in, in folklore uh, does not make one an occultist. So how does the Volkish movement spawn uh, a specifically uh, German occultism? Well, that begins pretty much with a guy named Guido von List, who was a... Good, good German name there. Good German name, yes. Uh, and he uh, was, I believe he was an Austrian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so even more hilarity uh, for, the, for those scoring at home. Well, uh, those will note that uh, Austrians caused a lot of trouble in this period. Yes, yes, that, that, that's, a, that's foreshadowing. That's, that's in the backstory. So von List is a medium successful Volkish uh, writer. He is a a guy who uh, sort of writes stuff about how great it is to walk down the the, 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 the the lane and know what all the trees mean and that kind of thing. And he stumbles onto a uh, a good thing when he writes a novel called Carnuntum about the heroic Germans beating the hell out of the Roman Empire at at the site of what would become Vienna. And he says, I know this is true because I saw it in a vision. I mystically was transported to Carnuntum, and I saw it there. And everyone says, well, if it was mystically transported, that's all I need. <laughs> and they made Carnuntum a big success. And I think that sort of starts list ticking, and he thinks, oh, there's there, the, this being transported places, this occult mystical revelation is maybe what I've been missing from my uh, nature walks. And so I, I, I think he has sort of his eyes open for that, and he starts reading more about the sorts of things, because once you've written one book about being a re reincarnated um, uh, sage who looked back in time and saw a battle against Romans, people start sending you their pamphlets. And he's, he starts reading all of these other sorts of works. And again, theosophy is, is in the air. You have this notion of, of secret wisdom being passed down through a, a, a hidden conclave of secret masters. That's also a big part of German Freemasonry, speaking of the Enlightenment, uh, uh, screwing itself over, but the um, the thing that he does 
finally is he starts getting into the study of the runes. And the runes are, of course, the old way that uh, German uh, speakers, uh, Teutonic languages generally, would write down uh, their language. And the runes are just another alphabet, uh, just like the Roman alphabet, just like the Hebrew alphabet, whatever it is. There are, depending on which rune set you talk to, 17, 18 runes. And it was part of this going back to find your best national past that had very real linguists and very real uh, anthropologists digging around looking for the the Ur pattern of the runes, the, the first rune pattern. And because if they could say the first runes were older than the Hebrew alphabet, then that's one in the eye for, South, for Southern Europe and one in the eye for France. And um, uh, we can make uh, Germany more awesome by finding awesome runes. And so that's sort of around, but when List is uh, goes down for a, a cataract operation, he spends about 11 months, I think it is, blind. And all he can do is hear sounds. He, he People will read books to him, and he's got nothing to do except think and meditate and go a little crazy-er. And when he comes out of his cataract operation, he says, while I was blind, I had a vision, a revelation of the runes. And he writes a, a book called... Geheimnis uh, der Runen, The Secret of the Runes, and he sends it off to the Vienna Academy of Sciences and says, don't worry, everyone, I've solved the rune problem. And the Vienna Academy of Sciences, you know, just sort of silently puts his book aside. Yes, well, what part of sciences did you not understand? <laughs> did you nod off? Even in Vienna, this is not the sort of science we do. And that became a big political deal because it became a way in which good German, you know, mystical occult wisdom was being dissed by those highfalutin city folk in Vienna, which is full of, you know who it's full of, <laughs> and it's all kind of trouble. And so that sort of begins that first little chink in the in the wall of rationality that is not particularly well set up to begin with. And the uh, the the, the Heimnister runen, in addition to coming up with awesome mystical meanings of all the runes, uh, talks about how this rune lore is passed down in things like. Um, architecture, it's passed down in, in folk songs, it's passed down in all the things that Volkish-type people really care about, and if you go back and you study the runes, it becomes obvious that the runes must have been created by a cast a, 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 a cast of uh, magician kings called the Armanan, who are the, the, uh, the name that basically, I think, List makes up for the ancient, uh, sort of the druids or the magi of Germany. Makes up in his vision. In his visions, yes. He sees in his visions. Is um, uh, it, like, like Volkish, it doesn't translate as well. We translate it as made up. <laughs> but uh, and, and this sort of belief in this primordial uh, sect of, of rune magicians that sort of sets down the way Germany ought to be, the way the German people, the Volk, ought to be, is sort of the thing that, that, that gets everything rolling in terms of the the occultism that becomes Nazi occultism. Right. And so you have fused something that uh, has a sense of nationalistic resentment to it. Uh, you've created a uh, mythology. Um, and so I guess this is now bringing us to the point where uh, these pre-existing mythologies, like the theosophical one and the one that uh, von Liszt is creating, begin to... Uh, sort of metastasize into something that is uh, parallel to the development of uh, the Nazi movement. And uh, one thing that you uh, will sometimes uh, read 
uh, is that, uh, you know, there was no real such thing as Nazi occultism because Hitler himself was famously uh, not an occultist. And that, I think, is something that you uh, accept as a uh, an absolutely true statement. But there were uh, some people within the Nazi high command who were interested in this. So, <laughs> To put it mildly. Yes. Now, as someone who... Uh, uh, has not memorized the Nazi org chart. It's not helped by the fact that they almost all, all have names beginning with H or G. Um, <laughs> you could uh, maybe give us some quick profiles of the uh, members of the high command who were amenable to this uh, strain of thought and who were responsible basically for uh, promulgating and uh, protecting the occult strain of Nazism. Well, certainly first and foremost in the uh, world of, of wackadoo uh, Nazism, is Himmler, right? The the guy, he's the Reichsfuhrer SS. He's either the second or third most powerful man in Germany pretty much after the Nazis take over uh, until the, the day they're pounded into suet by the Allies. Right, and what does being the Reichsfuhrer of the SS entail? It, it means that he runs the SS, and the SS is the internal police. It's the Gestapo. It's the uh, spy service, the external uh, secret police. It is the guys who are running the death camps. It's the guys who are... Uh, uh, serving as the sort of um, elite units of the of, of the of the fighting forces, uh, although you can get a lot of pushback on that from military historians who point out that if the rest of the Wehrmacht had gotten the favorable degree of supplies and uh, weapons that the SS did, that they would have uh, done even better than they did. The real Wehr Wehrmacht has never been tried. <laughs> has never been tried. That's right. Yes, that um, uh, if only. No, you get plenty of that too. But the uh, but the notion being that the SS is basically a state within a state. It is all of the uh, party mechanisms within uh, Nazi Germany in the same, almost the exact same way that the KGB is all the party mechanisms within uh, the Soviet Union, that it is an arm of the party, not of the nation. It's as though um, the, the Republicans or the Democrats also had their own army that also ran the FBI, also got to decide who did and didn't get to be um, uh, you know, uh, a professor at a university. They also ran the CIA, and it was all run ideologically on a party basis as opposed to in some notion of, um, of a national movement. And the SS... And that is why, you know, the older uh, parts of German society looked at, askance at the SS, also because it's a place that a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> schmucks wound up because they couldn't get jobs in the proper Wehrmacht, and so they joined the SS early, and then, you know, their their ticket came in in 1933. Right, and so what, one of the challenges of getting one's head around this period is uh, distinguishing one's powerful psychopaths. And mm -hmm. so uh, what is it about uh, him as a, a person that... Uh, drew him uh, to an interest in, in the occult as well as wielding all of these engines of uh, uh, quasi-official state power. Yeah, the, um, the thing that I think makes Himmler go is to a very large extent that he doesn't like his life when he's young, which a lot of people don't, and his life was a fairly straightforward, um, you know, German uh, Catholic life. And when he was rebelling against his folks, he really rebelled against his folks. And so he knew he didn't like Catholicism because it was, again, part of this Roman influence that, that List warns us about. But what he replaced it with was not Lutheranism or even normal, you know, agnosticism or atheism. It is this constant search for other spiritual components that can go into his his ideological makeup, his, his mindset. And he becomes fascinated early on with Hinduism and Buddhism in the same sort of, you know, way that hippies did later on in the 60s in America. 
except again, you know, with without the mass murdering. So yeah, much. It's more murdering <laughs> in this case. <laughs> and um, so he, he he starts reading about reincarnation. He's convinced that he's the reincarnation of uh, a couple of ancient uh, German heroes who are also named Henry, just like he is uh, Henry the Fowler and Henry the Lion. And so he is sort of, you know, constantly searching for stuff to prove that his, you know, New Age avant la lettre. Uh, Gallimaufry of beliefs is right and his parents were wrong and Catholicism specifically is wrong. And so he's, I think, impelled in a lot of ways by that sort of constantly looking for something bigger and better than Heinrich Himmler to believe in. And, you know, you'd think bigger and better than Heinrich Himmler should not be that hard, but apparently it was hard for Himmler to find it. So um, how did Himmler wind up rising to power within the Nazi movement? Basically, he becomes uh, the head of Hitler's bodyguard um, back in you know the, the street fighting days when there are communists around with rocks and uh, other people around with rifles and who knows what could happen. He's uh, got sort of a bureaucrat's temperament, so he's really good at organizing everyone to go out and do things. And he's 112% loyal to Hitler, which is the real key because Hitler knows that he's got to have a, a hatchet man if he's going to keep uh, rising but the hatchet man, the trouble, of course, is you give a guy a hatchet and he starts looking around for the biggest guy to hit it with, hit, hit with it. And in this case, he could trust Himmler to go around and do pretty much everything without worrying that it was going to come back and bite him. Right. And so if he thought some of Himmler's beliefs were doolally, that didn't uh, matter because he was the perfect instrument as, as hatchet man. Right. Yeah. I mean, and part of it is, you know, that if you are with someone building a, a movement, you know, if if you and and someone are out there, you know, uh, working really hard to keep uh, Canada clean of litter, the fact that the guy who's your number two in the anti-litter campaign is really into UFOs is kind of irrelevant to you because the question is all the damn litter, right? right? And if you expand that out to, you know, building a, a political party in interwar Germany, it you can believe a lot of crazy thing before it gets onto Hitler's radar. Right. And so uh, Himmler is the major patron of, of the uh, occult strain of Nazism. Uh, and who were the others? Uh, the other ones, uh, there's a guy named Alfred Rosenberg, who was sort of the party ideologist. And he uh, is a uh, a guy who understands history in a mystical way. I think it's it's perhaps useful to understand that Hitler looks at history as though it's an opera and Rosenberg looks at it as though it's a mystical revelation or a mystical tome that has to be decoded. Right, and his his diary just turned up. His diary did just turn up, and I'm going to be very excited to find out, A, if it's a forgery, and B, if not, what it says about all these other issues. Because Rosenberg, because I guess because his diary vanished, uh, really sort of gets, um, uh, gets a thumb in the eye from all the other Nazis uh, when they wrote their memoirs or other people write biographies about them. You know, it's all, you know, Rosenberg's sort of the, the Zeppo of, of the Nazi uh, bigs. And so you don't, you don't get a lot of insight into Rosenberg. But Rosenberg was as, as crazy as a, as a squirrel, just like the rest of them. And in his particular case, he had, he wrote a book called The Myth of the 20th Century, which was literally the myth that the power of the swastika would elevate Aryan, the Aryan race to destroy the Untermenschen. And that would, that would be the myth that would define the 20th century. And all of that, of course, is, you know, we, we, we look at that and we say, ah, oh, it's a political movement. But for Rosenberg, it's also a, a really, it's a true thing about the way the world is. He looks at it as a prophecy, not so much as a program right. in, this, in the sense, right? It's, it's like if you, if you use the book of Revelation and you, you build a whole country around the book of Revelation, people will stop looking at the book of Revelation as a, 
as a scripture, and they'll start looking at it more as clues to how you could possibly have been so crazy as to build that giant golden statue. Right. So for, for him, he's not he's the guy for whom the magical thinking is not the subtext, but the text. Right. And it's sort of the whole point, really, because it is only through ma- such magical thinking that you're going to get that swastika up there, and you're going to get the Aryan race elevated above all the, the, the various uh, beast people that surround it. Uh, Rudolf Hess is another occultist. He was a member of... Um, uh, the Fool Gesellschaft, which I suppose we will get to in a future segment. But he is a, a big, um, he was born in Alexandria, Egypt, and I suspect he was always sort of interested in uh, the exotic and the, and the occult. He's the sort of occultist that I think you turn into if you have a pretty good mind and no judgment whatsoever, as opposed to Himmler sort of turns to it out of need and desperation. Rosenberg turns to it out of sort of a, a belief stronger than himself. I think Hess really is the kind of guy who's like, well, I don't know. I've looked into this UFO thing, and I think it makes a lot of sense. He's that kind of guy. And in his case, the, the things that he thought made a lot of sense were uh, uh, various uh, secret revelations from uh, Superman of the past. And he was, mem- he was a member of, as a matter of fact, a French secret society uh, bef- uh, in just right after World War I ended that was doing the same sort of uh, looking around for mystical uh, leadership that, that he was. And he found it, of course with uh Karl Haushofer and then with Adolf Hitler and he was he was he was uh, a cult uh by uh by nature in that then then there were people who were just straight up neo pagans they were like oh good now that uh horrible christianity is gone i can worship thor uh openly and without being mocked by my neighbors and those are guys like richard dare who becomes uh the guy who writes the blood and soil uh movement sort of creates the blood and soil part of of nazi ideology and becomes minister for agriculture later on or Karl Wolf, who is um, one of uh, Himmler's uh, top adjutants and turns out to be a very resourceful Nazi indeed. And he's, you know, an, an Erminist pagan. And to the extent, well, obviously being an Erminist pagan is a great way to get promoted under Himmler. And, and quickly explain what an Erminist is. This is not someone who worships a small weasel-like creature. No, no, it's an Erminist with an I. And an Erminist is, uh, again, uh, flashing forward to, to future episodes, uh, someone who believes in a... A schismatic group of crazy rune people. Uh, remember that List believed in the Armanan, um, whereas uh, which is from a, a basically from a line in Tacitus about the Ermionis, who are a a sort of a super tribe in Germany. Um, uh, List translated Armanan. Karl Maria Villagut, the uh, crazy clairvoyant that hangs out with Himmler, who Himmler uh, trusts because his clairvoyant visions are more awesome even than Guido von Liszt's, he says that Liszt has got it all wrong, and it's the Irmin that's important, not the Armin. And if you are a rune, a rune magician, obviously, these questions of vowels are, are, are killing words. Right. So we have our emotional, political, uh, intellectual environment, and uh, we now have our uh, cast of contrasting psychopaths who uh, further these ideas. So I think we've uh, established our baseline for uh, the series, and uh, next week, indeed, we will look in detail at uh, Villagut, uh, and until then, we will uh, leave the listeners to uh, digest all of this uh, craziness and horror. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Tout your regional brown sauce at kennandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.